Luke chapter 19 in your Bibles. We are continuing in the Missio Christi series this morning. We've been in this series for several months and we're nearing the end. Just a few more weeks to go in Missio Christi. The title of this message this morning is Restore. We're going to be looking at Christ's interaction with Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19 If you're there, we'll start reading together in verse 1. It says, And Jesus entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was. And he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are that seeking God and that God who saves and is mighty to save. Thank you, Lord, that for so many of us here, we were the lost and you came and you found us. You saved us and redeemed us and restored us. You've removed our shame and our guilt. You've given us new life and hope and joy and peace. And we ask, Lord, that as a church, these things wouldn't be lost on us. But we would always have a mantle of praise on us. There would always be a spirit of celebration that we would never tire of rejoicing in this great salvation. And Lord, that we would never tire in telling of this great salvation to a world who is burdened with guilt, shame, and condemnation, and desperately needs to be set free, restored, and renewed, brought into joy and peace and hope and life. If there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who has never experienced your freedom as they repent of their sins and are forgiven, we ask that today by your kindness, as we speak about your kindness, you would draw them to that place of repenting of their sins and coming to you. We ask that you would flood their lives with grace and mercy. And we ask for all of us that this grace and mercy would be radically transformative. That just as Zacchaeus was restored and the whole town could tell this man has been changed, we pray for our towns and cities that we would be a great representation of your love. Lord, we ask now together that you please help me to communicate your truth. I'm humbled and nervous before so many people. We just ask that you would cause me to be faithful to your word for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, 
In the Missio Christi series, we've been looking at the way Jesus does mission. Because in John 17 and in John chapter 20, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I now send you. So in the same way that the Father sent Jesus into the world on mission, Jesus has sent us into the world on mission. So Jesus then is the model for our mission. And if we want to live lives on mission, as we should, we need to then study how Christ did mission. And that's what we're trying to discover in the Missio Christi series. And what we're going to see in our text this morning is Jesus restoring, restoring in a person the marred image of God as generous giver. Jesus is going to restore in this man Zacchaeus the image of God as generous giver that has been marred by sin. And as we're discovering and studying and thinking about the mission of Christ, we realize that the mission of Christ surprises humanity. It surprises us. We're surprised about who he calls and how he calls them. We're surprised at the barriers that Jesus is willing to break to just, just to reach one broken person. We're surprised at the way Jesus touches those who everyone else in society avoids. And we are surprised by the kindness that Christ shows to really bad people. And this Jesus, what we see of him in the Gospels, he astounds us, he fascinates us. We're fascinated with Jesus because of the way he is. Now, most of our study in Missio Christi has been a look at God's concern for the poor, the oppressed, the powerless, and the marginalized. Those that we've come to call the least of these as a reference in the New Testament. The poor, the oppressed, the powerless, and the marginalized. We, marginalized. we spent most of our time looking at God's heart for them. And Jesus himself and the gospel accounts are always thrusting them before us. The poor, the oppressed, the powerless, and the marginalized. Always thrusting them before us because we don't care enough about them. But here in our text today, Jesus surprises us again because Zacchaeus was none of these things. Zacchaeus, we're told in verse two, was a chief tax gatherer and he was rich. Zacchaeus had the power of Rome behind him. He was anything but powerless in that culture. Zacchaeus, in fact, was one of the oppressors. He wasn't oppressed. He was one of them. And we're told Zacchaeus was rich. He wasn't poor. Zacchaeus was rich and powerful and oppressive. Now, it is true that tax gatherers in that culture were marginalized by Jewish religious society. In the Gospels, we see the phrases tax gatherers and sinners lumped together to represent really bad people. And that's generally from that Jewish religious perspective. Both terms are used to refer to someone who ignored the Old Testament laws and Old Testament religion altogether. Tax gatherers and sinners were the irreligious in a very religious culture. 
But it's important for us to understand as we look at Christ's interaction with Zacchaeus that not everyone in first century Israel was religious. And that they, tax gatherers, would not have been considered on the margins in broader culture. Tax gatherers were rich, powerful, and partnered with the oppressors. They were generally Jewish nationals who were recruited by Rome to collect taxes from the Jews for the Romans. The Romans required a certain amount of collection. Whatever the tax collector was able to gather on top of that was his profit. So the more that he could strong arm the people, the more profit that he got. And if the people were getting uh, upset about that, if there was some sort of uprising or rebellion, tax gatherers had the soldiers of Rome behind them to enforce their extortion. So they became rich by taking advantage of others. They were extortionists who were able to enforce their greed with the power of Rome. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax gatherer. He was good at what he did. He had been promoted. He was exceedingly wealthy, we would assume, being a chief tax gatherer. Realizing that then, what we discover here is that God is, listen to me, God is compassionately concerned about both ends of injustice and suffering. God is compassionately concerned about both the victims of injustice and suffering and the perpetrators of injustice and suffering. Both of them stand under the judgment of God. Both parties are in need of mercy in different ways socially, perhaps, but equally in need of God's mercy. And what we see here is that Christ loves them both. That Christ loves and is concerned about those who are oppressed, but Christ also loves and is concerned about those who oppress. And God pursues both of them in mission. In fact, In the vignette previous to our story, when Jesus is entering Jericho in chapter 18 of Luke, he encounters a blind man. The blind man is on the side of the road, and there it's the blind man who calls upon Jesus. The blind man calls out to Jesus as Jesus is passing by, but here Jesus calls on Zacchaeus. Jesus is pursuing this oppressor. And what his actions illustrate, the actions of Christ, is the intense desire of God to have sinners reconciled to himself. Even tyrants and extortionists. Now, we live in a culture, a broad culture, and a church culture, if you're part of that, a Christian culture, a broad culture and a Christian culture that is becoming increasingly aware of and concerned about the least of these. Within the church, in America, in America and really worldwide, it's popular now to be involved in justice mission and justice ministry and mercy ministry. And that's good, that's great, that's wonderful. It's it's popular within the church. We're becoming more aware of the plight of different peoples around the world, brought to the forefront by recent disasters like that in Haiti. But also in broader culture, not just in the church, broader culture is becoming more aware of the suffering of various peoples around the world. And it's become 
trendy even, in broader culture, to be generous toward those who have less, to begin to give. In America, there are over one million nonprofits committed to helping those in need. In the last year, Americans gave over $300 billion to relieve misery and help those who are in need. So we as a church culture and as a broad culture, we want mercy for the oppressed and relief for the poor. And that is good and very good. But we seem to simply expect divine justice and harsh judgment for the powerful and rich that create and perpetuate the systems that oppress. And that's bad. We seem to just expect that they're going to get divine justice and harsh judgment from God. Those who are responsible for various forms of oppression and injustice in our world. And that's bad. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about judgmentalism. And the rich and the powerful and those who abuse wealth and power are easily put in the sights of our judgmentalism and our condemnation. But we talked about how we're not permitted by God to do that, even with those who seem to deserve it most. And when we do that, when when we just render them as as done, as as going to be judged by God, then we're underestimating the grace of God then are we not seeing some particular parties being beyond the reach of God's grace? No one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. God cares even about the unjust wealthy who take advantage of others and have gotten their wealth that way. We're reminded by Ephesians chapter 6 that as we war against injustice and oppression and these things in the world that we see, that our war is not against flesh and blood but powers and principalities of wickedness. And we need to remember that our worthiness and their worthiness as the unjust wealthy and his oppressors, their worthiness is not the issue. Our worthiness is never the issue. God comes to us and gives to us and is nice to us precisely because we're really bad. That's the point of it all. That's the good news. That's the gospel. God comes to us, gives to us, and is really nice to us because we are so bad. Mark 2, starting in verse 15, reading from the New Living Translation, tells this story. It says, Later, Levi, who was also a tax collector, invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There we see those two lumped together again. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Jesus heard this. He told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. 
Zacchaeus is one of those men. Now to be sure when it comes to sinners and the redemptive work of God, the mission of God in the world, God is calling sinners to repent. And God is calling us to a life of sanctification in order that we might be ultimately reconciled to God through repentance and transformed through sanctification. But Jesus Christ, as the visible manifestation of God's outreaching and pursuing love, never makes people change before he demonstrates God's love to them. Jesus Christ is a visible manifestation of God's outreaching and pursuing love. Never calls people to change before he demonstrates God's love to them. Romans 5.8 is consonant with this. God gave his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. Enemies of God were called a few verses later. God demonstrates his love. The staggering nature of God's gracious character is that in the person of Christ, he even sits down to eat with his enemies. Because for Jesus, acceptance and belonging proceed repentance. There's a dangerous statement. For Jesus, acceptance and belonging proceed repentance. Jesus ignored the religious crowds and went straight to the one that represented all that they hated, imperialistic Rome. Traitors to nation and religion, the tax gatherers were. Jesus goes right past the religious crowds and directly to the one who represented everything that they hated, a despised collaborator. And then Jesus invites himself to his house in that culture to stay in somebody's house and to eat with them was a sign of intended friendship and fellowship. A sign of acceptance and belonging. And to invite yourself into somebody's home spoke even more of that sort of intended relationship. That that wasn't really a normal thing to do in that culture. In fact, it's not normal in our culture and we're a much looser culture than they were. That was an honor and shame culture. It was based on, it, was, it had to do with dignity and honor. And nobody would dishonor themselves by inviting themselves like that. Especially to a collaborator's house. Even in our culture, we don't invite ourselves. Well, most of us don't. We have a, a pastor on staff. His name is Todd and his wife, Trista. And they're dear friends of Kate and I. And uh, we love them dearly. And Trista's a super good cook. She makes incredible food. So we love going there for dinner and uh, it's always spotless and clean and comfortable because they don't have kids. They don't have any kids at all. So their place is just beautiful and spotless and comfortable. And we just love to go lounge there and eat food. And uh, they had recently invited our new church planner, Al and his wife, Nina, over for dinner. And I was hanging out with Al a couple days before and they kind of mentioned offhand, oh yeah, in a couple nights we're going to Todd and Trista's for dinner. And I was all, Awesome, Kate and I will come. <laughs> and Al was like, ah, uh. you know, he's new to town, so he doesn't know that I do this, that I invite myself over to people's houses. So he's like, uh, well, let me call him, bro. I'll call him and I'll, I'll check and see if it's cool. And he's like, uh, Britt invited himself over. Trista's like, yeah, he always does that. Bring him over, that'll be awesome. <laughs> 
behind that is this, this real and authentic love. You know, that Kate and I have for Todd and Tristan, Todd and Tristan for us, that we're able to do that. Christ inviting himself to the home of Zacchaeus is this real and authentic display of love that he's willing to do that. And Jesus' friendship with sinners, and they always accuse them of being friends with sinners, Christ's friendship with sinners gave the world a tangible sign of the welcoming grace of God. A tangible sign of the welcoming grace of God. There's a book that's helped me a lot in my biblical studies called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. I recommend it to you by Kenneth Bailey. Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And in speaking about this passage in that book, he suggests what the crowd might have wanted to hear Jesus say. What would have been more appropriate for the religious crowd for Jesus to say. He suggests that they would have liked to have heard Jesus say this. Quote, Zacchaeus, you are a collaborator. You are an oppressor of these good people. You have drained the economic life blood of your people and given it to the imperialists. You've betrayed your country and your God. This community's hatred for you is fully justified. You must quit your job, repent, journey to Jerusalem for ceremonial purification, return to Jericho, and apply yourself to keeping the law. If you're willing to do these things on my next trip to Jericho, I will enter your newly purified house and offer my congratulations. And Kenneth Bailey closes by saying, such a speech would have provoked long and enthusiastic applause from the crowd. Now what I hope for the church is that in humility, we would to some degree see ourselves in the religious crowd. Because we want the unjust wealthy and the powerful and oppressive to be dealt with and to be dealt with first. Seldom do we want them to first experience love and grace, mercy and acceptance. We want them to get busted first, be dealt with first, make retribution first, make changes first. Seldom do we ever want them to first experience love and grace, mercy and acceptance? But what Jesus does here contradicts everything that that crowd thought about religion. For Jesus, acceptance and belonging precede repentance and then bring about repentance. We like to see people repent, change, before we let them belong. We do this often within the church. We're guilty of this sort of thing. Someone is on the outside and maybe they're looking in and they want to come in and we have these rules in place and maybe they're God rules, so they're good rules, but maybe they're religious us rules, so they're stupid rules. And whatever it is, we have these rules in place and we want to see somebody conform. We want to see them change. We don't want them to come in with that habit and that baggage and with that thing going on. Before we truly let them belong, we want them to change. We want them to conform. We want them to repent first. And we need to repent of that. That in no way represents Jesus. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. 
a changed life comes in response to salvation offered as a free gift. That's what we see with Jesus and Zacchaeus. So accordingly then, the gospel of Luke does not only thrust the needy and the marginalized before us, but it also seeks to draw our attention to the equally tragic problem of power and affluence. Luke represents throughout his gospel wealth, power, and status as the major hindrances to true discipleship. In fact, Jesus himself presents wealth as the primary challenging God to the actual God. Jesus presents wealth as the primary challenging God to the actual God. In Luke 6, 13, he says, no one can serve two masters, controlling influences. Nobody can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, in that culture, and it's true of our culture now, it's definitely true of our culture, I believe, that money is the most common counterfeit God. It's the most common thing that isn't a God that we allow in our lives to be exalted to the place of God. We give it controlling influence. We allow it to identify and define and value us and others. It's the most common counterfeit God. And it's important as we're confronted with a culture of false gods that are attractive, that we identify what following after idols, false gods, lesser gods does to us. Following after false gods mars the image of the true God in us. Anytime we commit ourselves to something less than God, pursue ultimately after something less than God, it always serves to mar the image of the true God in us. We were created in the image of God to bring glory to God. And then sin came in. And that image of God was marred in us. It was muddied. It was distorted. It was perverted. And then Christ came and paid the price on the cross for our sins and rose to give us brand new life. And in that brand new life is we are new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5. The image of God is restored in us and we become redeemed image bearers. But any time, to any degree, that we exalt anything in our lives to that place of primacy and supremacy, to whatever degree we follow after lesser things in an ultimate way, it always serves to mar, distort, pervert, dirty the image of God in us. And a basic understanding of the true God that we're to reflect is that he is a generous giver by nature. We need to get that. God is a generous giver by nature. We see it from Genesis to Revelation. I want you guys in your own biblical studies to begin to discover that everywhere that God is giving, that God is a giver and he's not an investor. He's not giving and he might get a return on investment. 
He's not a manipulator. He's not giving gifts so that he might get something out in return. He's a pure giver. He gives out of his character because he is good to those who don't deserve it. And he gives generously. Primary image of God is that God is a generous giver. We are created in that image. We are to be generous givers patterned after God. But our, solving, our serving excuse me, of false gods, especially money, causes us to become greedy takers instead of generous givers. Our pursuit of lesser things in an ultimate way causes us to become greedy takers instead of generous givers. Concerning money held wrongly, Tim Keller comments and says, when it takes hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening. It controls you through your anxieties and lusts. And it brings you to put it ahead of all other things. Now, what the mission of Christ is, is to restore, get the word. The mission of Christ is to restore the image of God in us, which has been marred by lesser gods in our pursuit of them through the new birth, which makes us new creations. The mission of God is to restore the image of God in us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, last week when we talked about Galatians 6.1, we looked into that word restore. And that word restore means to put a thing in its appropriate condition. And that's what God is doing with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is being less than the human God made him to be in his oppressive greed. And so God is looking to, in Christ, put him back in his appropriate condition to restore him, to set right what has gone wrong is what God does in our lives. Restoring us to being the way that God made us to be. And we see a profound picture of that restoration there in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said to him, Lord, behold, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, and you know he had, I will give back four times as much. That is radical restoration. That is authentic transformation. Half of his possessions he was going to give away now. He was going to pay back four times as much everything that he had extorted. That's more than the law required for making restitution. In Leviticus and Numbers, there was a requirement. This is like 300% more than that requirement. He's not operating according to the law. He's operating according to the grace that had been shown him. Because of Jesus' surprising pursuit of this man, Zacchaeus went on a journey from the place of self-centeredness to generosity. He went from being an oppressor of the poor to a champion of justice. He went from accruing wealth at the expense of others to serving others at the expense of his own wealth. Zacchaeus had been restored. That's what Jesus said in verse 9. He said, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus had been restored. Now, I want us to notice carefully in the details. 
that this restoration happened after Jesus had gone to be with him. It didn't precede Jesus being with him. It happened after. In verse 7, the religious ones, they were saying, oh, Jesus has gone to be with a sinner. And Jesus said in verse 9, today salvation has come to your house. Jesus was already in his house with Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus made this proclamation which demonstrated his journey from self-centeredness to generosity. My point is this. Zacchaeus didn't do it beforehand. He wasn't trying to impress Jesus. Nor was he trying to earn favor with Jesus. The whole point is Zacchaeus had favor with Jesus. It was totally undeserved, unmerited, unwarranted, except for the character and the nature of God. He's not making some religious pronouncement. He's not saying, God, I will do this if you restore me. But after having been with Christ, who restores us, after having experienced the favor, then he's changed. And what we see here is that the favor and the kindness of God modeled in Christ changed Zacchaeus in a way that religion had failed to for his whole life and that all the scorn of the people was unable to do. The peer pressure of people were not able to change Zacchaeus. Keeping the rules and the law and religion weren't able to work transformation in Jesus. The only, in Zacchaeus, excuse me, the only thing that transformed him was the favor and the kindness, the grace of God. What we see is that we're not saved by our generosity. It's not what's happening here. We are saved by God's generosity. That's what's happening here. That's not to say, don't misunderstand me, that's not to say that humanity is not separated from God by our sins. We are. It's not to say that there's not a need to repent. There is. First thing that Jesus said in public ministry was repent. And the first... uh, 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 sermon preached by Peter at Pentecost was repent. We are to repent. And it's not to say we're not to be sanctified. We are to be sanctified. We are merely saying that Jesus in the flesh, in history, among humanity, Jesus embodies God's desire to restore all people. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God desires that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Verse 10 in our text, Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He desires to restore all people. Again, don't misunderstand. I'm not preaching universalism. There must be repentance and we must receive Jesus to be saved. 1 John 1, 9, as many as have received, or no, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, as many as have received him, to them has been given the right to be called the children of God. We must receive Jesus through the repentance of sins. It's pictured right here in the text with Zacchaeus in verse 6 when it says he gladly received Jesus. It's a picture of that. After he received Christ, the transformation come. And what we realize is it is God's kindness 
that leads us to repentance. That the kindness of God could never, or, or excuse me, the scorn of people and the rules of religion could never accomplish what the kindness of God does. Our repentance and our restoration. God's love does not suppose that God approves of man's sins indiscriminately. He doesn't. Don't don't confuse love with indiscriminate approval. You love people and you don't approve necessarily of everything they do or believe. God's love does not presume that he approves of our sins indiscriminately. He doesn't. But Christ and the cross demonstrate that God loves us in spite of our sin in ourselves. And the acceptance in the love of Christ towards Zacchaeus in spite of Zacchaeus has caused him to experience a restoration. He's been restored. The image of God as general giver, as generous giver in him has been restored. And now Zacchaeus has his identity in God and not in the false God of wealth and money. And now his security is in God, not in the false God of money. Therefore, having his security and his identity secure in God, he is restored to a right view of money. And he is freed to be a generous giver because he doesn't find his identity in that anymore so he can give it away in the image of God and for the glory of God. And so our calling and our mission is not only to display generosity and care toward the hungry, the poor, the powerless, and the oppressed, but it is to even be generously kind toward the unjust wealthy and the corrupt powerful because God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And we are the evidence of that. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your beautiful character on display in Christ in this text. We ask that this would not be lost on us, Lord, but you would restore unto us the joy of thy salvation, that we would be overwhelmed with what we've been shown in Christ, the mercy, the love, the acceptance, the grace of forgiveness. Lord, if anyone in here has never experienced that, we together, hundreds of us, pray that they would. That your kindness in this moment would be drawing them to repentance. That they would receive you as Lord and Savior. That you would flood their lives with grace and mercy and newness. They would experience peace and joy and hope, acceptance and new identity in you. And Lord, we pray for all of us that our identity would be so secure in you that we'd be free to be generous. We confess that we're not there yet, but we press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We want that image of generous giver to be restored in us by grace for your glory. So Lord, work in us. Communion is here to remember and celebrate the cross. You can come and get on your face before this Christ who fascinates us. The prayer team is up here. If you need any help whatsoever, if you have money issues, identity issues, acceptance issues, whatever's going on. If you need help, they're here for you.